In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. O God, who bestowed on the priest, blessed John Henry Newman, the grace to follow your kindly light and find peace in your church, graciously grant that through his intercession and example, we may be led out of shadows and images into the fullness of your truth. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. In the fall of 1980, I was 18 and an atheist and a very arrogant young man. And I went to Princeton University to begin my undergraduate work in large measure because it was not in the South, that is, in the Christ-haunted South. I wanted to live in a culture completely secular, illuminated by the light of pure reason. That, at least, was the vision. During orientation week, we had a large gathering of the freshman class for the first time in splendid Alexander Hall on the center of the Princeton campus. It's a magnificent Romanesque auditorium. And as chance would have it, or Providence, sitting right next to me was a young man who was not one of my classmates, but a journalist who was there to cover the event. He was working for a magazine published by an alumni group of the university, Prospect Magazine, published by the Concerned Alumni of Princeton, a conservative group of alumni who were uh, concerned about the drift of the university into relativism and secularism. The young man who was uh, working for the journal was recently graduated from Hillsdale College and was a principled conservative. So he introduced himself and said, why don't you come down sometime and visit the office and let me introduce you around. Well, I did, and one of the men that I met there uh, was the publisher of the magazine named Robert Royal. Bob uh, now runs a think tank in Washington, D.C. called the Faith and Reason Institute. Uh, at the time, he was a doctoral student working on his um, uh, Ph.D. in comparative literature. He's a Dante scholar. Uh, and it was a fascinating, far-ranging conversation that was sort of, for me, an introduction to a much larger world than I had ever imagined in, in the cocoon of my uh, supremely self-confident 18-year-old atheism. And one of the things Bob liked to do was hand me books. Go read this. That was his way of stoking the, stoking the fire. And one of the books that he handed me was called The Idea of a University, a series of lectures given in the middle of the 19th century by an English priest named John Henry Newman of whom I had never heard. And aside from the coincidence of our last name, uh, there was no obvious reason for him to hand me this text. And yet, he knew that this would be the hook uh, on which so much would later depend. So I read The Idea of a University, which was not written as a single book, but given as a series of lectures and then published later together, um, explaining John Henry Newman, that is, explaining the very idea and purpose of a university. 
which it turns out was, of course, invented by the Catholic Church. Well, it was part of my introduction to serious Christian ideas. And I was intrigued, so I went to, George, to Bob again and said, who, who is this Newman, and is there more that I can read? And he handed me a book published in 1962, the year of my birth, written by an English woman named Mariel Trevor, called The Pillar of the Cloud. It was the first of a two-volume biography of John Henry Newman written by this woman. She had been born in eight, uh, 1919 uh, and grew up a conventional um, sort of uh, Church of England by default kind of Christian. But after World War II, in which she served in the civilian service in Britain, she went to Italy, and that was her introduction to Catholicism. She became a Catholic in 1850, and she, did, she was received into the church at Oxford. And as we'll see in a moment, Newman, the first half of Newman's life was dominated by Oxford. It was there that she was introduced to his life and work and then wrote this biography, The Pillar of the Cloud. The second volume is entitled Light in Winter. I did not read it at the time. So that's how John Henry Newman came to my life through my friend Bob, who served as my sponsor for confirmation in the fall of 1982 when I was received into the church. John Henry Newman was born in London in 1801. His father was a prosperous banker. His mother was a gentle lady uh, descended from French Huguenots. Um, they were prosperous gentry. They were not noble. They didn't belong to the, to the system of British nobility, but his prosperity gave them a place in society. And John Henry had a very conventional life as a child up through his early teens when he was sent away, as most English boys of means were, to boarding school at Ealing. And when he was 15 years old in 1816, while he was a student at Ealing School, he experienced a profound religious conversion. Now, it's not that he was irreligious before. He was baptized as a baby, brought up in the Church of England, uh, read the Bible at home. Uh, he, he wrote years later, uh, was taught to love reading the Bible by his grandmother. He had memorized the catechism in the back of the Book of Common Prayer as a boy. So he was not irreligious in any sense, but it was conventional um, national religion. We, I'm an Englishman. There is a Church of England. This is my religion. But when he was at school in 1816, one of his school teachers, the ma one of the masters at Ealing School, was himself a clergyman who had undergone a personal conversion of the kind that um, Methodism was based upon. Uh, with Wesley's heart strangely warmed, an evangelical experience of the power of God's love, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, a personal conversion to the Lord Jesus. However you want to put it, there was this awakening in his 15-year-old heart and mind of the personal force of the living God, which was accompanied by 
the acceptance of dogmatic, systematic Christian doctrine. The schoolmaster who had influenced um, the young Newman had become a Calvinist. One of the weaknesses of Continental Reformation, the Lutheran movement, and the Church of England was, its absent, was the absence within both of systematic theology, a way of understanding the doctrines of uh, the Incarnation and uh, the Trinity and Christ's atoning death on the cross. Um, Luther gave us the catechisms and the confessions. The Church of England has the Book of Common Prayer, but neither provides a systematic working out of doctrine, and Calvin does. And so 15-year-old John Henry has this uh, emotional experience of conversion and the impress on his mind of the principle of dogma at that moment under the tutelage of John Calvin. The following year, he went up to Oxford, as the English say, um, and he was a brilliant student. Everyone understood him to be one of the finest minds of his generation. He was to finish his undergraduate studies in 1821, and he studied so hard for his final examinations that he had a nervous breakdown in the midst of taking the final exams. So instead of finishing with what the British call a first at the highest level, he finished with a third, a third level degree. Under normal circumstances, that would have been the end of his academic career. But all of the fellows who had been his teachers understood what had happened, that this was one of the most remarkable students they'd ever had who had worked himself to exhaustion and just collapsed. So he stayed for an additional year and um, in, um, let's see, 1882, he was elected a fellow of Oriel College, Oxford. The way one became what we would call a professor at Oxford University in those days was to be selected by the fellows, that is the scholars who already constituted the teaching faculty, as we would say, at one of the residential colleges of Oxford. Oriel is an ancient college from the 12th century, and Newman was elected by them to join them. So, in 1822, at the age of 21, he became a professor, as we would say, at Oxford University. Then, as was customary at the time, he was going to be ordained to the ministry in the Church of England. April of 1824, he became a deacon in the Church of England, and May of 1825, he was ordained to the priesthood for the Church of England. So, he's 24 years old, he's a professor at Oxford, and a priest in the Church of England. And his first assignment is in a parish, just a normal parish, where he does normal priestly duties, baptisms and marriages and funerals, and celebration of the Eucharist on Sunday. But in 1828, when he's 27, he's selected to be the vicar of St. Mary's, which is the University Church of Oxford. And that was one of the most significant turning points in his life because it put him in a position of enormous intellectual and spiritual influence. He would, from the pulpit of St. Mary's, the university church, preach a series of sermons that reshaped uh, the thinking, not only of the undergraduates who were present in Oxford at the time, 
but of his colleagues in the leadership of that part of the Church of England, which did not consider itself Protestant. And here we come on one of the key ideas that he wrestled with for 25 years. Is there a difference between the 16th century Reformation in England that led to the separation of the Church of England from the Church of Rome? Is there a difference between that and what happened in Europe? Between Anglicanism and Lutheranism or Anglicanism and Calvinism. And it's important to note that it's in his years as an undergraduate at Oxford and leading up to his ordination that he abandons Calvinism. He begins to see the limitations of Calvin's systematic theology. What he's left with is the idea that revealed religion requires an authoritative dogma. And then he adds to it the sacramental principle that God's grace is mediated ordinarily not through ideas but through the sacraments, the mysteries of the New Testament, baptism, the Eucharist, and so forth. So, there he is in 1828, the vicar of St. Mary's, beginning to give these sermons, which are more like lectures to us than, than sermons, about the nature of religion and how it's experienced uh, by common people and by intellectuals alike. And he begins to exercise great influence on these young undergraduates, both those who are his students in Oriel College and those who were simply present in the university church for worship. In 1832, one of his dearest friends, a man named Hurel Frude, got sick. Have you ever been to England? Today is like, you know, mid-August in England. It's, it's wet, it's damp, it's cold. Uh, so uh, when Englishmen get a cough, they want to go to Italy. That, that's what you, that's the, the doctor if was writing the prescription, go to Italy. So what do they do? They get on a ship and sail for the Mediterranean. And this was Newman's first exposure to Italy. Now there's something in the English soul that doesn't come alive until an Englishman goes to Italy. In fact, if you go even now to Tuscany, Toscana, where Florence and Siena are located, two hours north of Rome, there are so many Englishmen that the local Italians call Toscana Chianti Shire. <laughs> so Newman and Frude go to the Mediterranean. They stop in, in uh, uh, southern France and, and go on to southern Italy. And that's Newman's first trip to Rome. And he was horrified by the, uh, what he regarded as superstition that he saw in the people, the, the paganism with a patina of Christianity over it. But Italian culture and architecture and food was just delightful to him, and it awakened something in him, a yearning for something more than what he had known in England as a young man. Uh, a second part of that journey left their ship stuck. The winds died, and they were stuck for several days waiting for the wind. And while they were waiting, he composed a poem. Long before he was famous as a preacher and, and a theologian and philosopher, he had developed a real gift for poetry. 
and he wrote this poem, which has been set to music and um, is beloved by many. It's a, it's a prayer. Lead, kindly light, amid the encircling gloom. Lead thou me on. The night is dark and I am far from home. Lead thou me on. Keep thou my feet. I do not ask to see the distant scene. One step enough for me. I was not ever thus, nor prayed that thou shouldst lead me on. I loved to choose and see my path. But now lead thou me on. I loved the garish day, and spite of fears, pride ruled my will. Remember not past years. So long thy power hath blessed me, sure it still will lead me on, or moor and fin, or crag and torrent, till the night is gone, and with the morn those angel faces smile, which I have loved long since and lost a while. This theme of darkness and light is redolent of Plato's cave, the allegory of how the mind comes to understand the deepest truths. Newman entitled this poem, The Pillar of the Cloud. It's commonly known simply by the first words, lead kindly light, but Newman's title for it was The Pillar of the Cloud, and that's how Mariel Trevor came up with the title of the first of the two volumes of her biography referring to this text. That's 1833. That was a turning point in Newman's life for several reasons. Another fellow of Oriel College was an Anglican priest named John Keeble. And in 1833, he preached a sermon called National Apostasy. Keeble and Newman and their friends, Hurel Frude and Edward Pusey, all of whom were brilliant intellectuals, had become convinced that conventional Anglicanism was the enemy of true Christianity. That it was um, pure convention based on nationality and not only did not correspond to the truth of the gospel, but was an impediment to accepting the truth of the gospel. Years later, Newman will identify that sermon preached by his friend Keeble as the beginning of what we call the Oxford Movement. At the, at the time, it was just another event in their lives, but they later looked back on that. In the same year, 1833, Newman published his first major work called Arians of the Fourth Century. It was an historical theological text designed to understand how the majority of Christians in the fourth century had been led astray from the truth of Catholic faith into the heresy of Arius, the Alexandrian priest who believed that there was once a time when the sun was not. 1833, Arians of the fourth century. 1833 is also the publication of the first of what Newman would later call Tracts for the Times. These were pamphlets, most of which he wrote himself or edited from texts written by friends. It was a project that he started uh, to lay out the principles of their criticism of the conventional religion of the day. 1833. So, he'd been vicar of St. Mary's, the University Church of Oxford, from 1828 
Now, five years later, after this tour of Italy and his awakening uh, to whatever was going on there in Rome, he begins this Tractarian movement, which is another name for the Oxford movement, to restore the Catholic dimensions of Christianity, which are not antithetical to the true Reformation spirit of the 16th century. This leads him in 1836 for the first time to speak of the via media, the middle way. And he begins to make a principled case that Anglicanism is a middle way between the equal errors of Romanism and Protestantism. That Anglicanism, the middle way, the via media, is in fact ancient Christianity without its medieval errors in Romanism or its Renaissance errors in Protestantism. That if Augustine or Ambrose or Chrysostom could come back in the 19th century, they would be Anglicans. That this is ancient Christianity stripped of all the errors. It's from this time forward, the late 1830s, with these various men each making their own contributions to the Oxford movement, that Newman becomes one of the most um, famous men in England. It's hard for us to imagine, but in that time, reading printed sermons was one of the most popular things in the country. The Walters of Novel Scott and the sermons of John Henry Newman, this is what people would buy like hotcakes at the train station um, newsprint shop. Uh, so his personal influence and fame by, let's say, 1839 or 1840, are enormous. And the undergraduates in Oxford stop in the street as he's passing by. It's Newman. And they crowd into the, into the church on Sunday, St. Mary's, to hear him preach. And he was a famously soft-spoken man with no amplifier, of course. So he would stand in the pulpit, and in order to hear him, the church had to be absolutely silent, which only heightened the sense of something sublime Then in 1841, Newman published the 90th tract for the Times. So they'd been cranking these things out once a month or every six weeks, another tract for the Times. Tract number 90 was Newman's attempt to read the articles of religion, which are printed in the back of the Book of Common Prayer, as a Catholic. Seen now, from our point of view, the whole enterprise is absurd. But it was not to Newman. It was, it was the inevitable, logical conclusion of what had started in 1833. But it's taken eight years to get to that point. And it provokes an enormous pushback from the authorities of the Church of England and the University of Oxford. While this has been going on, all of this intellectual work has been going on, a parallel movement has been going on in worship. How would Anglicans have dressed at the altar 
how do they actually celebrate the Lord's Supper? When Newman and the others began their movement, it would have looked very much like a Methodist or Presbyterian worship service would today. In a very short span, they had introduced vestments for the ministers, candles on the altar, not the table, the altar, um, the ritual forms of a celebration of the Eucharist that we take for granted. These were revolutionary things, and they created enormous anger in those who thought that they were a backdoor of bringing Romanism back into the Church of England. So in 1841, when track number 90 is published, all hell breaks loose. And accusations are being made to Newman and Keeble and Froude and Pusey and the others. You're corrupting these young men. You're leading them astray. You're lying about your real motives. This is pure Catholicism. This is Romanism. This is the wickedness that the Reformation freed us from. And the following year, 1842, in response to the fury and the pushback to the Oxford movement, and because of his own interior doubts, Newman resigned from St. Mary's and moved out to the village of Littlemore. Today, Littlemore is a suburb completely surrounded by Oxford. In those days, it was a distinct place, about three miles outside of town in a pasture. And the buildings to which he retired were basically barns, sheds, that were cobbled together. And he went there. There was a little church, which was a, a, a mission of St. Mary's. He went there to um, take care of this little mission church and get out of the spotlight and, and leave his teaching and read and pray and sort out these questions for himself. But that was not to be because the young men followed him. They wanted to live with him. They wanted to be under his tutelage. They wanted to pray with him. And Littlemore became kind of a prototype of a monastery, a community of men living together around a chapel uh, in common prayer. It's at this time that he preaches his sermon saying farewell to, to the Church of England and to his friends. And he goes into seclusion. Um, and for the better part of two years, he was truly in agony about what to do. He was trying to sort out the truth of Christianity, the competing claims of the 16th century reformers, Catholic authorities from antiquity. And it, it takes a very long time. But finally, in October of 1845, an Italian priest, remember how all this was awakened in Italy? Italy and Italians had become important to him. An Italian missionary priest named Dominic, Dominic Barbary received Newman into the Catholic Church in the chapel of these cottages in Littlemore on the 9th of October. October 9th is now the date in the Roman calendar 
on which the Feast of Blessed John Henry Newman is kept. He's 44. And everything he has spent his life building is gone. He's a pariah in Oxford. Half of his family won't speak to him. His friends are furious at him. Keeble, most especially. Uh, he's lost everything. He doesn't have a job or home. And all he knows is he has to obey his conscience. He turns to a man named Nicholas Wiseman, who had been rector of the venerable English college in Rome, the place where Englishmen who were going to study for the priesthood had gone for centuries and then gone back to England and been made martyrs. Wiseman was by then a bishop. And Wiseman used his connections to make arrangements for Newman to go to Rome. And he moved to Rome in the fall of 1846. He's 45 years old, and he's got to start his life over. And the men in the seminary are half his age. And these Italians don't know who he is. He's the most famous theologian in England, and to them he's just some Protestant who's lost. So he goes through a few classes at the uh, university run by the Society for the Propagation of the Faith, Propaganda, now called the Society for the, Evangel uh, the, the uh, um, Congregation for the Evangelization of Peoples, the great missionary society um, that organizes in Rome the missionary activity to the non-Christian parts of the world. Imagine, you know, England, a non-Christian part of the world, Non-Catholic, yes. Uh, and there, toward the end of 1847, in Rome, Newman is ordained to the priesthood. While he was there, he had to think about his return to England and how he was going to live as a Catholic priest and the experience that, it, that he had in Littlemore of this kind of monastic religious life had inspired him to try to do the same thing. He did not want to go back and just be a diocesan priest in charge of a parish, which was really the only other alternative. Remember at this time, no Catholic can study at the University of Oxford. Because in order to be admitted to the university, you've got to subscribe to the Articles of Religion, which no Catholic could do. And this was true of all of the universities in England. There was no possibility for intellectual life in a university setting. So he looked at several alternatives, including the Dominicans, but by then, at that point in history, the Dominican order was, was nearly extinguished. Napoleon had almost destroyed it. It had not yet been restored and renewed by the French movement led by Lacordaire. So that wasn't an option. And the best thing going in Rome at the time was the community known as the Oratory, founded by St. Philip Neri in the 16th century. So at the moment that Henry VIII is making a shipwreck of Catholicism in England, and John Calvin is uh, ruling Geneva as a theocracy, Philip Neri in Rome is organizing a community of priests to live what was then the new evangelization to revivify the city of Rome itself. 
Ignatius Loyola is just up the street while they're doing this, founding what will be the Gregorian University and the Church of the Lord Jesus, the Jesu. It's a great moment to be in Rome. And Philip Neri drew together a group of laity, the little oratory, and of men who became priests, and they built what was called in the 16th century the new church, a church on a spot where there hadn't been one before. And it's hard to find a spot in Rome where there had never been a church that was not at least 1,000 years old. So they find a spot, and there's never been a church there, so they put one up, and that's the new church, Chiesa Nuova. It's still called that 400 years later. If you go to Rome, ah, La Chiesa Nuova, the new church, which to us looks like, you know, a work of antiquity, but no, not to the Romans. It's a new church. And it's that uh, community, that way of living that Newman saw was most flexible and adaptable to the circumstances of the time for Catholics in England. So he went back, leaving Rome in uh, late 1847. He went back to England and was agonizing over where to go. He couldn't go to Oxford. He was excluded from Oxford. London was a possibility, but there were already things happening in London. He settled finally on Birmingham, or as the Brits call it, Birmingham, which was an industrial cesspool. Birmingham was one of those cities that the Industrial Revolution transformed almost overnight. Smokestacks and factories and hordes of working poor, mostly Irish, mostly Catholic. So Newman and some of his friends <coughs> set up shop in Birmingham and formed the Oratory of St. Philip Neri. They open a school and start a parish, and in very short order, uh, they have a thriving Catholic presence in Birmingham. Four years later, or five years later, in 1854, the bishops of Ireland are ready to start a university. Remember, England ruled Ireland. It was impossible for an Irishman to get a university education in Ireland for the same reason that Catholics couldn't go to Oxford. They wanted to start a Catholic university in Ireland so that Ireland's young men would be able to have a university education. Who better than to get the famous Oxford Don, now a Catholic priest. So he becomes the founding rector of the Catholic University of Ireland, which has undergone countless mutations in the 150 years since, but the successor reality, institutional reality to that, is University College Dublin. And it's as the founding rector of the Catholic University of Ireland that Newman gives the lectures that were later published as The Idea of the University, which was my introduction to Newman in 1980. He serves for three years as the rector of the university, commuting between Birmingham and Ireland. Um, but he doesn't have, uh, how shall we put it, political skills and runs afoul of quarreling among the bishops in Ireland uh, over how this is going to be structured institutionally. So he just thanks them and goes back to running 
the community in Birmingham. All the while, he is exchanging letters with people all over England, and in fact, the continent as well. I forget how many volumes his published letters fill, but it's enormous, and they're all kept. Uh, this is an age before telephones, let alone emails. Everything had to be written by hand, and the correspondence is extraordinary. Um, he was a spiritual guide uh, to hundreds of people who wrote for counsel, who were filled with doubt, who were on the same road he had been on. Uh, a splinter group from his oratory in Birmingham left over uh, disputes that aren't worth our attention tonight and went to London and founded another community, also called the Oratory, uh, and raised a huge Italianate church um, uh, in London called usually just the um, Oratory, uh, which is there to this day. Um, but he lived largely hidden. His correspondence was voluminous. He was still writing and researching and lecturing, but he had largely ceased to be a celebrity, as we would now say, until 1864, when a Church of England vicar named Charles Kingsley accused Newman of being a liar, uh, um, cast dispersions on his masculinity because he'd never been married uh, and created the myth that the whole Oxford movement was a Jesuitical plot, that all those years he was laboring at the university and as a minister in the Church of England, he was really a secret Catholic and that the entire thing was a ruse to seduce a generation of young Oxford men into becoming Romanists. Well, Newman began to fire back with essays in two-week intervals that were published uh, the next year as a single volume under a Latin title. The whole text is in English. The title is in Latin. Apologia Pro Vita Sua, a defense of his life meaning my life. And it is a spiritual autobiography that begins when he's 15 and has his conversion experience in school and gives an account from the time he's 15 up to that moment of the inner journey of all the things that he wrestled with in understanding historic Christianity, revealed religion, the controversies of the 16th century, the truth of Catholicism, the experience of his conversion. Uh, and it's a masterpiece, both of English prose and of a spiritual autobiography. It made him once again a public celebrity in England. Kingsley was made to look like a fool. Newman actually sued him for libel and lost, so the court process was not successful. But in the court of public opinion, 
he was vindicated as a wise teacher, a true Englishman, and a Christian gentleman. In 1870, he, he published many books over the course of his life, but some of them were truly singular. And in 1870, he published one called The Grammar of Ascent. His full title is actually An Essay in Aid of a Grammar of Ascent. It will crack your head. It's, it's, a, 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 it's, a stu it's psychology, philosophy, theology. It's a, it's a review of the phenomenon of religious belief and an attempt to explain why the act of faith is not irrational even when the believer cannot give a rational defense of his belief. Uh, if you really want to stretch your mind, read the grammar of ascent. Along the way, he published some really splendid things. There's a little monograph on uh, the Benedictines and the Dominicans and the, the religious genius of Benedict and Dominic. There's a series of lectures called The Present Position of Catholics in England where he's a pugilist. He, he's, he's like Scott Hahn of his day. Uh, you know, come on. I'll take everybody who wants to argue with me. And he's explaining the distinctive features of Catholicism to an English audience. Well, the cashing out of his Apologia Pro Vita Sua, his return to public life, as it were, is that in 1878, he was able for the first time since 1842 to go back to Oxford. He went to visit a friend. Almost 40 years, he couldn't go back to the place he loved best because that's what being a Catholic cost him. As it happens, the very day he was in Oxford for the first time in almost four decades, Pope Pius IX died. Pio Nono, as he's called in Italian, uh, was the longest-serving pope in history. He dominates the 19th century. And the second half of his papacy uh, is kind of a um, grim moment in the church's history for many reasons. It was during that time that Newman the Catholic was held in great suspicion by many Catholics, bishops, theologians, and lay people. So here's the irony. This man who was adored as an Anglican and then who becomes a Catholic and is despised by the Anglicans is increasingly held in suspicion by the Catholics to whom he went as insufficiently Catholic because he did not subscribe to the intellectual method of teaching theology in his day, um, which was basically memorization of formulae that, that cooked down the principles of, of St. Thomas Aquinas into sound bites. And because he made a principled argument for 
uh, liberty of conscience, um, uh, autonomy of reason, even in the face of the truth of revealed religion. Um, his work was generally regarded by the conservative element of the Catholic Church in England as at best suspect and probably crypto-Protestantism. In other words, he couldn't win. The Anglicans thought he was a damnable Catholic, and the Catholics thought he was a damnable Protestant. And so, despite his great personal um, satisfaction for being a Catholic priest and the founding father of the Birmingham Oratory and the founding rector of the Catholic University of Ireland, there's this suspicion hanging over him that he's not really one of us. Well, the year after that trip to Oxford on the day that Pius IX died, there's a new pope, Leo XIII, who has been a student of Newman and understands the trajectory of the man's life and work. And Leo XIII, through the Secretary of State, informs Newman that he's going to make him a cardinal of the Holy Roman Church. And this is Leo's way of uh, signaling to the whole Catholic world, yes, his work is Catholic and it is trustworthy and he is not suspect and he is to be revered by Catholics everywhere. It was customary, indeed obligatory at the time, for anyone who was made a cardinal who was not yet a bishop to be ordained to the episcopate and usually unless he was a diocesan bishop, to live in the city of Rome. Newman wrote back to the Pope and acknowledged the, the um, gracious offer, asking to be dispensed from these two requirements, that he would not become a bishop and he would not have to live in Rome so that he could continue living as a priest at the oratory. The Pope readily granted both requests, and Newman went to Rome uh, to receive the red hat. When he got to Rome and received the official notification, the ticket that lets him into the consistory, called in Italian the biglietto, like a movie ticket. It's a beautifully engraved thing on parchment that you present, and they let you in, and now you're a cardinal. He received the biglietto and gave a speech to mark the occasion, sort of a summary of his experience <coughs> to that moment when he's 78 years old. And he's thinking about his life as a teacher in Oxford, as a priest in the Church of England, his conversion experience, and all of the labor sense. And in the Biglietto speech, among other things, he says this. For 30, 40, 50 years, I have resisted to the best of my powers the spirit of liberalism in religion. Never did Holy Church need champions against it more sordidly than now, when, alas, it is an error overspreading as a snare the whole earth. Liberalism in religion is the doctrine that there is no positive truth in religion, but that one creed is as good as another, and this is the teaching which is gaining substance and force daily. 
It is inconsistent with any recognition of any religion as true. It teaches that all are to be tolerated for all are matters of opinion. Revealed religion is not a truth, but a sentiment and a taste. Not an objective fact, not miraculous. And it is the right of each individual to make it say just what strikes his fancy. In his own words, that's Newman's summary of his life's work. You can have revealed religion or its counterfeit, liberalism in religion, which reduces all religion to a matter of personal taste and opinion. This was also his way of answering his Catholic critics back home, that he does stand with them fully and squarely, despite the sophistication and the subtlety of the work that he has spent decades elaborating, explaining uh, the complexity of religious belief and the liberty of conscience that each believer must have. So he goes back to England, a cardinal. And once again, as in 1839 and 40, he's the most famous man in the kingdom. Uh, he lived mostly out of sight until his death in 1890. Uh, age gradually left him frail. Uh, and he died on August 11th, 1890. Uh, he was hailed at the time as one of the greatest Englishmen who ever lived. He was celebrated in Lytton Strachey's book, Imminent Victorians, as one of the great personalities of the time. He was mourned by Anglicans and Catholics alike. More important for us, is what happened after his death. His work continued to be studied um, by Catholic theologians. His early work on the fathers of the church was one of the first examples of what we now call ressourcement, the return to the sources, a theological movement in the 20th century which prepared the way for the Second Vatican Council. His teaching on religious liberty prefigures the conciliar decree uh, on religious liberty, Dignitatis Humanae, which repudiated the confessional state and an established church and enshrines the principle that the church never seeks to impose anything. She only proposes the truth of the gospel. Uh, many theologians regard him as the first father of the Second Vatican Council because his work paved the way for that event in the 1960s. Newman was beatified on September the 19th, 2010, by Pope Benedict XVI. Benedict had been a student of Newman's all of his adult life and uh, took great delight in personally beatifying Newman. When Benedict became the Pope, he stopped the custom that John Paul had observed for a quarter of a century of personally presiding at both beatifications and canonizations. One is beatified, declared beatus. That is, one is said to, to know that the church knows with certitude that this person sees God in the face after the certification of one miracle. 
and is canonized after the certification of a second miracle. The principal difference is not we're more certain that this person is in heaven. It's that a beatus, one of the beati, uh, can be venerated sort of locally, and a canonized saint is extended to the universal church. So Benedict said when he became pope, he would no longer preside at beatifications, only at canonizations. And cardinals would do the beatifying, and he would do the canonizing to sort of heighten this distinction. Well, he disregarded his own policy in the case of John Henry Newman. It was an outdoor mass near Birmingham. And in the night before the mass, there was a vigil outside. And the Pope said this in his homily. This is Benedict the 16th in 2010. Newman, by his own account trace the course of his whole life back to a powerful experience of conversion which he had had as a young man. It was an immediate experience of the truth of God's word, of the objective reality of Christian revelation as handed down in the church. This experience, at once religious and intellectual, would inspire his vocation to be a minister of the gospel, his discernment of the source of the authoritative teaching in the church of God, and his zeal for the renewal of ecclesial life and fidelity to the apostolic tradition. At the end of his life, Newman would describe his life's work as a struggle against the growing tendency to view religion as a purely private and subjective matter, a question of personal opinion. Here is the first lesson we can learn from his life. In our day, when an intellectual and moral relativism threatens to, to say the very foundation of our society, Newman reminds us that as men and women made in the image and likeness of God, we were created to know the truth, to find in that truth our ultimate freedom and the fulfillment of our deepest human aspirations. In a word, we are meant to know Christ, who is himself the way, the truth, and the life. That is why John Henry Newman, long before he was Beatus, became the patron of university chaplaincies established by the Catholic Church, ironically not in England but in the United States. Any Catholic who went to a university, a secular university in the early or mid-20th century, remembers the Newman Club. That was the name given to Catholic chaplaincies for university students after John Henry Newman. Because of his understanding of the phenomenon of disbelief and belief, his experience of conversion and of well-considered uh, faith of the apostolic tradition, uh, he became the model for a well-educated Christian. And now he is Beatus. Remember that my first introduction to Newman after his own idea of the university was Mariel Trevor. In Holy Week of 1991, 20 years after my conversion, no, I'm sorry, at that time, 10 years after, I went to England. I was living in Italy. I was a seminarian, and I went to England with two classmates. And we had a splendid week. It was just marvelous. We, we flew 
uh, from Rome to uh, London, and we rented a car and drove all over the south of England. Palm Sunday, we were in Canterbury Cathedral. We drove to Salisbury and Glastonbury and Bath, and we went to visit Oxford, and one of the students from the oratory was a classmate of ours in Rome, and we went to visit him at the oratory. We went to Birmingham. I have photographs of me in Newman's private rooms holding his breviary at his grave. On Holy Thursday, we were going to go to London. We were overnight in Oxford, leaving for London. We were going to have Mass of the Lord's Supper at Westminster Cathedral in London. But before we went, I said to our friend at the oratory, you know, I'd really like to go to Littlemore, where he lived in 1842 to 1845. It has been preserved um, and is um, a residence for a group of consecrated women from Germany. Remember, it's Ratzinger who beatified him. Newman had exercised enormous influence in Germany and Italy through his writing. This group of women belonged to a community called The Work, Das Werk. And they live there, and, and it's a center of study and prayer, and one of the priests from the oratory goes out to celebrate Mass for them in the chapel, which was the chapel, the room in which Newman was, became a Catholic, where he celebrated the Eucharist in his last days as an Anglican priest. So they call ahead, and, and the women know that we're coming, these three Americans, and we come screeching up in our Mustang. We, when we rented the car, it was a convertible Ford Mustang. And I went racing around England, bumping up on the curb every time we went into a roundabout on the wrong side of the road. Hmm? We hired a car, that's right. And so we get to Littlemore, and the main room has been turned into a little museum where memorabilia is on display, including his violin. He loved to play violin. And who is there? Just coincidence or providence, but Mariel Trevor, who was then an old woman. She lived till the year 2000. Well, I was just deeply moved by this. I took her hand and kissed it. I said, Miss Trevor, I owe my faith under heaven to John Henry Newman, and I owe my introduction to John Henry to you. And she began to cry. We had one of those moments. It was just lovely. We saw the buildings, and then the, the superior of the community said, it's time for midday prayer. Would you join us before you leave? So we went into this little chapel where Newman became a Catholic, and when we got in there, the superior turned to me and said, would you lead the prayer? And it was just the liturgy of the hours right out of the breviary, so we had the midday office. And everybody left but me. I had not spoken even to my classmates about the doubts in my heart about my vocation. I was really not certain I could do the whole celibacy thing. And it was causing me great interior distress. Newman himself had intuited in that critical year when he was in school at the age of 15 that he would be a lifelong celibate. He believed that God had called him 
to make that sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom. And then, of course, the course of his life and his influence in bringing me to the Lord Jesus. So I'm sitting there in the chapel by myself, really not sure why I'm lingering, but filled with doubt. We're going down to London. The Mass of the Lord's Supper, it's, it's the day on which the priesthood is celebrated, the Chrism Mass. Uh, is this what I'm meant to do with my life? And in the silence, it was as though a hand rested on my shoulder. And in my mind, not with my ears, but in my mind, I heard the words, you're on the right road. It was that simple, a fraction of a second. I'm not given to religious experience. It's all in here for me. But when I came out a few minutes later, one of my classmates saw my face and said, what happened in there? Blessed John Henry happened in there. A friend on the way. A man who knew about doubt and vocational crises and the struggle to believe in the face of obstacles both interior and exterior. You're on the right road. So there's Newman at the beginning and the end of my story. And now a gift to the whole church, blessed John Henry of Oxford. When will he be canonized? God alone knows. Sadly, he's not in the American liturgical calendar on October 9th. He is in England. I have suggested um, to a variety of people with some influence in these matters that he should be on the American calendar because of his influence in our university chaplaincies. Uh, we'll see. In any event, um, his life and his work, which filled the 19th century, stand as a perpetual witness to the truth of the gospel, to the truth of the Catholic faith, to the possibility of conversion against all odds, to uh, the reward of faithful servants who sacrifice everything for the pearl of great price. Let me pause there and ask for your questions or comments. Track 90, which is what got him into such great trouble and caused the explosion that blew the Oxford movement off its rails, was his argument that it was possible to read the 39 Articles of Religion as a Catholic. The 39 Articles, which were added to the Book of Common Prayer, were an attempt in the 16th century to nail down the specifics of English Protestantism. And here was Newman uh, arguing that these are not Protestant articles of faith at all, and that it is possible for a Catholic, not a Roman, but a Catholic, an Anglo-Catholic, to read these in a Catholic way and affirm the apostolic tradition of the ancient faith in a Catholic way, at the same time, a Reformed way, the Via Media. Remember, this was the project. Neither the errors of Rome nor the errors of the Continental Reformation, but um, pure um, 
undisturbed, true Christianity uh, of the English variety. That's right. The ancient church in England. Uh, and the bishops of the Church of England didn't see it that way. Well, of course we're Protestants, is the, is the gist of their reply. What else? Uh, the, is it the Brompton Oratory? Or the, Brompton, the Brompton Oratory. I couldn't come up with the word, yes. The Brompton Oratory. It's this gigantic pile of stone. Italianate. You th you'll it, once you go into it, you forget that you're in Kensington. You're in the most fashionable place in London. Instead, when you're inside, you'll swear you're in Italy. The art and the architecture is all Italian, and it's it's Baroque Italian at the most extreme. And that's how the fathers, the founding fathers of the Oratory in London, wanted it to be. It was in your face. It was a it was a statement of Baroque Catholicism at its most exuberant to proper English people, and it was, it, was, um, it was deliberately provocative. It's amazing the power of you, Father Newman, and Blessed Sir, Dunwoodley, and then St. Mary, St. Mary. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that, and that's where the similarities end, because he was holy and I'm not. That's true. That's true. I would be shown to the door. Yeah. When you had mentioned in your journey through the faith and when you had gone initially to Princeton and you had lost a close friend uh, and that perhaps it made you realize that we all are not invincible right. starting on your movement. Was the date of that prior to receiving that book from Royal that made you even more susceptible? No, no, the book was first. The book was first. The, the book was first. The intellectual foundation was laid before the, the personal crisis. Uh, what Gary is referring to is a, is a part of my conversion story. There were many pieces that fit together. The intellectual preparation was this introduction to Newman and other Catholic authors, uh, reading Augustine and Aquinas in a course that I was taking, recognizing that there was far more depth to Christian uh, ideas than I had known as a boy in the Carolinas. The latter pieces were personal. Uh, the end of a uh, relationship with a woman I hoped would be my wife, the death of one of my sweet mates uh, in the summer between freshman and sophomore year. The, these things eventually came together as a single stream but at the time, I didn't perceive them uh, as connected. There was this disconnect between what I was reading and thinking and arguing about and what my life was. And la later they came together, but no, they were separate at the beginning. How do you spell Dominic Barbary's last name? Well, it's close, John Barbary. B-A-R-B-E-R-I. There's the difference. That's right. Um, if you want to read a, a single biography of Newman, uh, the, the most important uh, contemporary work is by Ian Carr, K-E-R, who's a Catholic priest and an Oxford don. Um, 
and uh, it's a brilliant summary of, of Newman's life and work. Mariel Trevor's biography, published in, in 1962, is still a really splendid introduction. The Pillar of the Cloud is volume one. Light in Winter is volume two. It's a little more pious and devotional than Carr's, which is, you know, sort of scientific and uh, professional uh, history. Um, but both give you an a authentic glimpse of the man. Um, one, it has been suggested that one of the reasons it took so long to, to beatify Newman is that there was a hesitation that had less to do with his intellectual work and his writing than with his personality. It was, it was often suggested that he was overly delicate and pernickety and a prickly pear personality and that he took every little snub to heart and got huffy about it. That's all false. That's not the man. That's part of what Lytton Strachey described in his portrait of Newman in Eminent Victorians. But Strachey was a mess. Strachey was a confused, self-loathing homosexual who uh, was, he was a mess, a brilliant man, part of the Bloomsbury set, but a mess. Um, Strachey didn't know Newman personally, and his portrait of Newman, um, metaphorically, created this image of the over-refined uh, cleric, uh, which simply doesn't correspond to the man. The, Newman's character emerges in his own writing and in the testimony of the people who did know him. And he was uh, an extraordinary man who lived through difficult challenges and, and responded as we might respond ourselves to disappointments and setbacks and the false accusations of enemies. Uh, he wasn't going to take an insult lying down. Um, and uh, all of that was finally sorted through during the process that led up to his beatification. Um, and the, um, the judgment of the church was... Uh, he lived the Christian life with heroic virtue. I suspect that after his canonization, he will be enrolled among the doctors of the church. That is, among the, the theologians and, and teachers of, of Christianity who receive the highest approbation that the church can offer, holding this person up as an exemplar and an official teacher of the gospel. John Henry Newman. Unless there's anything else, we'll end with a prayer. Yes? Did he have any influence concerning what's going on bringing Anglicans in today? Yes and no. Um, no in the sense that um, there's no dotted line connecting Newman's conversion in 1845 from the Church of England to the Catholic Church to what's going on. Yes, in the sense that he's the trailblazer. He's the principal architect of the idea that it's possible to be a Catholic and an Anglican at the same time. And then, having built this beautiful edifice, he brought the whole thing down. He destroyed it himself to demonstrate there is no via media. There's not a middle way between Catholic and Protestant. There's only the true Catholic faith 
and all the false pretenders, of which Anglicanism is one. He made that very clear. There was no soft peddling the, the, the notion that every Christian community which separates itself from the church governed by the successor of Peter, the Pope, and the bishops of the world in communion with him, that every Christian community who separates itself from that church is departing from the church that the Lord Jesus founded and governs through his vicar on earth, the Bishop of Rome. So the first half of his life was leading up to this beautiful uh, edifice of the Via Media, and the second half of his life was destroying it and making sure that it was stamped out for all time. The unfortunate thing is generations of, of Anglicans read Newman up to 1842 and then stop. They, they're so uh, entranced by the vision of the Via Media and, and so adamant in insisting that they're Catholics, not Romans, but Catholics, that they forget. That's the prologue. Now go to the rest. One of my own family uh, is a bishop in the continuing Anglican movement, this tiny little sliver of, of Anglicanism left after the fracturing, fracturing of the Episcopal Church for the last 40 years. My first cousin uh, is a bishop in one of these movements. He's never read the Apologia Pro Vita Sua. He won't read it because he knows what's going to happen if he does. <laughs> the whole thing comes crashing down. Newman described it later in his life as unreal. It was a church that he built in his mind. It was not a real existing church. It was an illusion. It was a glittering illusion. It was beautiful and powerful, and, and it unleashed great creativity both in England and the United States. It, for example, it led to the reestablishing of religious life in the Church of England. And then it came to the United States. For example, uh, outside of Boone, North Carolina, there's a little place called, as they say it up there, Valley Crucis, Valley Crucis, the Valley of the Cross. The religious community called the Fathers of the Holy Cross, founded in the Oxford Movement, came down to North Carolina, to the far mountains, to set up monastic life at the invitation of the Episcopal Bishop of North Carolina during all that, a man named Levi Silliman Ives. He was a larger-than-life figure who was greatly influenced by Newman. Well, Newman's trajectory drew Ives after him. Levi Silliman Ives and his wife went on the grand tour of the continent in the, in the fashion of mid-19th century. You have to go for three months, and you, know, you take steamer trunks filled with all of your stuff, and you go by ship and then by carriage and train, and you, you go to all the fashionable places in Europe. And all of that was a cover for their final destination, which was Rome. And he asked for an audience with Pius IX, and he took off his pectoral cross and his Episcopal ring, and he laid them at the feet of Pius IX and asked to become a Catholic. This was Newman's 
example. And Pius said, sure, fine. Uh, but there was no possibility in that day for a former Anglican clergyman to be ordained to the priesthood. So Ives and his wife came back to the United States and established the first version of what became Catholic Charities in New York City. At which point, as in the case of Newman, all of these very fine establishment Episcopal clergymen said, see, we told you this whole Anglo-Catholic thing is crypto-Romanism, and that's what it leads to, and we want no part of it. Meanwhile, these monks are out there in the Valley Crucis living like Catholic monks in the Episcopal Church. So there was this flowering, but ambiguous, and the countersigns. All of that kind of went to sleep on both sides of the Atlantic, except for um, a few places in uh, large cities on the East Coast or the industrial Midwest. There was a little parish in Boston and New York and Philadelphia and Washington and Chicago and Milwaukee that was the Anglo-Catholic Episcopal Church. And if you went there in the 1900s, uh, or in the late 19th century, rather, or the early 20th century, even to this day, to that little place, what you'd see looks like Baroque Catholicism in Elizabethan English. Imagine the, the solemn high Tridentine mass written by Shakespeare. And, and, and that flourished for a little while, and now it's all bankrupt. It's all empty uh, and collapsing. Um, so Anglicanorum Cheribus, now to come back to your question. Anglicanorum Cheribus, not coincidentally, was a structure, uh, the, the document which created the structure for these Anglicans, was given by Benedict, the German pope who beatified John Henry Newman. He was creating a space for these small groups of Anglicans, and they are very small, who wanted to become Catholics and preserve some of their Anglican heritage. So in that sense, yes. It's a bridge. It's a bridge. They are Catholic. They are Catholic. It's sort of like the argument that Henry, Henry decided he was going to do his own thing, but he's still Catholic. The difference in this case is that the Bishop of Rome says that this is what you may do. The Bishop of Rome says this is authentic. That's the touchstone. No, these former Anglicans who are now Catholics are completely Catholic. They, they are as much a part of the Catholic Church as we are. They use a liturgy that's slightly different, but so do the Maronites. So do the millions of Ukrainian Greek Catholics. So do Melkites. Uh, there are 19 or 21 separate ritual churches in the Catholic Church other than the Latin Church. And they are all authentically Catholic. Um, Anglicanorum Cheribus was a gracious gesture of hospitality on the part of the Bishop of Rome to say to these Anglicans who have been yearning for full communion with the Catholic Church to come in, not as isolated individuals, but as groups. Come with your bishop. Come with your pastor. Come as a group. Re retain your identity uh, as a parish.
or now as an ordinariate, a quasi-diocese. Um, uh, and, and, and not be absorbed, if you will, um, as though you are simply discrete individuals without these bonds between you. How long it'll last, anybody knows. I suspect not more than a generation or two as a bridge to make it possible for these people to return to full communion with um, as much ease as they can. Um, it was, I think it was a, a, a gesture of great magnanimity on the part of Benedict. I'm going to conclude with a prayer written by Blessed John Henry. May he support us all the day till the shades lengthen and the evening comes and the busy world is hushed and the fever of life is over and our work is done. Then, in his mercy, may he give us a safe lodging and a holy rest and peace at the last. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thank you, friends, and good night.